Well, it's good to see God's people today. Some of us have uh, arrived a little later than normal today. It's been a busy weekend, a busy few weeks. I do want to say thank you for uh, the youth department and children's department and making quizzing available at our church to be able to travel and have a good time learning God's Word together, which is great. When they go and memorize Scripture, it gets real competitive. You know, I know God better than you and that kind of stuff. Um, great time together. You know, I was just thinking as we were singing Good, Good Father, and that song came out, you know, I guess six years ago now, give or take, maybe a little longer, and we were at a little church in Kentucky, and I remember singing that song, and it uh, grabbing my heart in a way because I was thinking about my dad, and that my dad was a good father, and he took care of us. He taught us about Christ. Uh, he brought us to church. He was very imperfect, and uh, did, but he was a good father. He did good at that, and it made me think of our spiritual father, obviously our father in heaven. I remember, um, I guess, I'm not sure if the interview was here or somewhere else, the church in the 21st century and late 20th century began to go through uh, worship wars where people are tugging and pulling and wanting their songs played. And we have a rich history of hymnals. And uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That's a Reformation song. I love that song. 500 years old. We still sing that. And some of the theology in a lot of our older hymns are very black and white theology in a sense. This is who Jesus is and that. It doesn't always express the emotion and experience of it. And so I was thinking about Good, Good Father. That is a good theological song. And we learned about a good father in Luke chapter 15, didn't we? The son who returned to the father. He's watching the prodigal son who comes home. And the father doesn't push him away. The father receives him. He weeps. His son is alive. He was dead. He's alive now. He was lost. Now he is found. And so in some of our modern songs... We capture the experience and the emotion some of the older songs didn't have. And that song just always strikes me in my heart. Um, and that we should be good, good fathers so our children recognize that there is a good father. And being good grandfathers and good fathers in the church to other children. Uh, church, as we begin today, I just have a quote here by Billy Graham. And I, just, I came across this some time back thinking about worship but he said the highest form of worship is the worship of unselfish Christian service. Isn't that great? So we think worship is just singing songs and praising in here. But worship, um, the highest form of it, unselfish Christian service. Doing what God has called us to do. The greatest form of praise is the sound of consecrated feet seeking out the lost and the helpless. So I love what Billy Graham does here. He takes something that we're doing and puts application to it. Our worship really is not just praising God, but doing something that helps people in the world that is serving. And today, church, I want to talk to you about serving a long-forgotten ministry, and it's making its way back into the church. And I pray that if it hasn't yet, that it will awaken your heart, um, that your heart is awakened to serve. More than just attending church, but looking beyond that and thinking about your relationship with God and your involvement in His mission in the world. So let's jump right into the Scriptures here. Luke chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 7 through 10. 
And Jesus is saying here, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? While he is um, not rather to say or say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? It's just a perfect question right there. Our culture, we are thanking people for doing what they should do anyway. And so there's a lot to say here. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants who have only done what was our duty. Now let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. We sit uh, at your feet today to hear from heaven. And Lord, I pray that you open our spiritual eyes as I've prayed many times before. Lord, whatever the distractions are today, remove them from our heart. Let us set them aside that we hear from you with spiritual ears. And Lord, I pray that you challenge us wherever we are in our walk. If we're a new believer in Christ, that we make the next step toward you and learning more about you and how we're to live. If we're someone who's believed for years but has never truly served or sacrificed, I pray today, Lord, that that begins. That they realize there's more to this. It's not about the minimal thing. It's not about the least expected thing to get in. It's about living the way you've called us to live. Bless your words as they go forward. In Jesus' name, amen. And the church, we're going to deal with Christian character versus the culture for the most part. So what are we seeing happening in the culture? What has Christ commanded the church and how we're to live as Christians? And the first thing we're looking at, predominantly the entire sermon here, is a servant's heart. So looking again at verses 9-10, through 10, I want you to see that with me. Um, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Um, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only, only done what was our duty. Uh, a very fascinating portion of Scripture. You know, we're getting into this. We're getting into what Jesus has had to say. We have to um, re, relearn the true Jesus. Our culture is trying to form a Christianity, a Jesus according to the world's way. And we know that Jesus is the only way to God, so we want to learn His way and what He is teaching us. Uh, this pierced my heart this week and has bothered me some in my soul as I'm reviewing my life. Um, you know, having a birthday this week, obviously, that reminds you how old you are. <laughs> when you're younger, you're like, I want to get older so I can do things. And when you're older, you're like, what in the world is happening? <laughs> you know, and uh, so I want to think of, I'm thinking about those things. You know, the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 20 years of my life, what have I done? What am I doing? What will I do? Um, if you have a Bible, there's a subheading here that says unworthy servants. And it's a weird portion of Scripture. It's like, really, Jesus? You know, these people are working. I thought we were supposed to give them trophies and high fives and all these things. And he's saying here, it's very severe. He's saying, no, no. You're an unworthy servant if you've only done the bare minimal, if you've done what is expected. So there's a severe thing that Jesus is saying, but very timely for our culture. And I want you to know that a lot of what happens in the culture finds its way into the church. If you see the, the challenges of human sexuality, and we should be speaking to those, we should have been speaking ahead of it, 
Instead, it happened radically in the culture and has come in and people in the church, the leaders didn't deal with it. And so they're trying to figure things out after the fact. So I'm doing my best as a pastor, a father, a husband um, to draw closer to God. Uh, I want to pastor the church well, um, but I am also watching the culture very closely. We've entered into an interesting period in history. We have a generation of people doing the bare minimal. And this worldly spirit has infiltrated the church. Now when I say a generation, I don't mean just Gen Z or millennials. It's interesting when we began to do research years ago that an average age of video game users, this was 10 years ago, was age 36. Average age. 10 years have passed. Unless they've given up the habit, they're in their 40s. And the thing is, is that there's some strange things happening in the culture, and it's not just young people. It's all ages are dealing with this. I mean, we could speak to Social Security. We could speak to disability. I'm meeting old people that are just depending on the government, and they're almost be making themselves sick. I have to be sick to get my check and there are people today, there used to be where there was shut-ins. Somebody is shut in, they could not move. They were shut in their home. They wanted to be here. I've been with people that have cried because they couldn't be in the church house. We're meeting people today that say, well, I'm shut in. And I've gone to visit people. And I've seen them out in town moving about just fine. But when it comes to church, they're shut in. There's these things, a spirit that is infiltrating the church and, and Christianity. And, and before I get deeply into this, uh, what has taken place, I do want to just tell the church, thank you. Uh, we have a lot of people serving. Years ago, there was the 80-20 principle. And uh, 80%, well, 20% did 80% of the work is in the church. 80% of the people showed up. And so we are seeing that shift here. That is not, we're seeing more people shift to 30%, to 40%. Um, we were putting together a seminar of leaders last year, and I think we called 50 people uh, to be, participate in this leadership seminar, which ends up being about a third of our attendance uh, of the people that come that are involved in leadership and serving. So I think that's really good. So my wife and I are extremely thankful for all those that serve, uh, everyone stepping forward. Uh, cleaning, repairing, setting up, tearing down, teaching, cooking, decorating, painting, all the renovations and things that are happening. Um, thank you to those who helped with the funeral. When people pass away, sometimes it's expected, sometimes it's unexpected. Um, setting up and, and saying, by the way, someone has passed away, can you have, give up some of your time and be here to provide a meal for the family to comfort family members? Jay gives up his time to be here to help run the media and, lead, and run songs and things and, and others who are involved in the services. We thank you for those things. Uh, we want to see more people put their hands to the ministry, though. I don't want it to be limited to just a few. Uh, for us to pass the mission on, we have to pass serving on. We have to teach young people. I love it when the young people are helping with offering. I love it when we see young people serving in the church, because it became a distant thing for a lot of people. Um, so here it is. We want to see more people serve, and my job as the pastor, um, every church will give you a list of things that they're expecting the pastor to do. Ephesians chapter 4 breaks down the role of the pastor for the most part. 
He is to equip the saints for works of service. Did you know that? When you bring, yeah, we're going to bring on the pastor. He's going to do all this. Guess what my job is? It's to equip other people to serve. Isn't that great? That is, y'all should have laughed. That was great. That is the pastor's duty is to equip. So we're equipping leaders. They're equipping other leaders. We're bringing in more people to believe in Jesus Christ, to learn the mission, to teach the mission, to serve in any way that God has gifted them. So God has created us to work. I want you to know that pre-fall, Genesis chapter 2, uh, 1 and 2, God is creating all things. He creates man. He creates Adam after in his image. He creates woman. He creates Eve. He gives Adam. Adam a task. He is to tend to the garden. He wasn't just supposed to lay around and do nothing in paradise. From the beginning, man and woman were created to serve, to work, uh, to use our bodies. Muscles are designed to, to move. They become stronger as you work. If you're not serving and then all of a sudden you do, then you ache a little more. I love to ache a little bit. Not my back going out. I don't mean that. I mean like I love to feel a little sore after a task. I want to feel that way. I feel like I've accomplished something. I've done work. But we were made in the image of God. We were made and designed to work. Um, and we are to work in the world. Um, I feel like today that people are trying to do um, the least amount. You've heard of people, they want to be minimalist. I think that is great because it's anti-materialistic. If you're minimizing your lifestyle, huge, good. Doing the least expected is not good for Christianity. We are called to serve. We are called to show up, to dig in, to get involved, to have our heart in the game. Uh, all hands on deck. Everybody serving in this thing to be involved in the mission of God. Um, to do as much as we can. And, and this is, a lot of times we forget this, but we are saved by the grace of God through faith. It is in the Scripture. You are saved by grace. But we have come to a place where we think, well, I'm saved by grace and I'm good. Everything is fine. I want you to know that God did not step out of glory and go to the cross, shed His blood, uh, to be resurrected from the grave for us to be lazy. We are called to serve. It's blood. It is sweat. It is tears. It is being involved in the mission of God. But we've bought into this idea that I can just you know, do whatever and God is going to rapture me out. I had a friend years ago, I was trying to invite him to church. He says he was a Christian, but didn't even participate in church. I said, I'm teaching a lesson. I'd love for you to come because we've been having these conversations at work. He said, are you teaching the book of Revelation? And I said, no, he was interested in just escape theology of being raptured out. I'm just going to say I'm saved and then hopefully be raptured out. And I said, no, we're not teaching them the book of Revelation. It's the 66th book. We have 65 other books to get into first. Come and, and learn some of these, and then we'll get into the book of Revelation. But people in their mind are kind of like, I'm only going to come if, I, if it's a lesson I want to hear, if it's on end time prophecy, prophecy and these things, and people are just waiting for God to return. God tells us to be busy about the work, to get involved in people's lives to serve We've been bought with a high price church, the blood of Jesus. Our owner deserves to have us work, to serve, to please Him. 
We have some scripture here I want to share with you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I love to share this because we are Protestant. And a huge portion of the Protestant Reformation is that you're not saved by works. The just are saved by faith. We are justified by faith. Huge for us. You're not saved by works. Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Um, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one will boast. I mean, pastors have been preaching that for years. You're not saved by works. You're not saved by works. And they don't share verse 10. I'm serious. This is our culture. This is Protestant Christianity. Verse 10, for we are His workmanship. God is working in our life. He is molding you after Him. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in these things. He's working in your life. He wants you to work. He's prepared them in, in, in past for you to do these things, that we're to work out these things. We're to be involved in the ministry. Jesus is saying here that if you had a worker that came in from doing work, would you tell him, you've done such a great job? You know, I, uh, I had some pictures of myself. I played baseball when I was a kid. I played football, basketball, and we got these great pictures. I love them because they bring back, you know, memories. But we did get the participation trophies. We did get them. I, you know, I still had them. I think I ended up getting rid of them because in later life, I was like, ah, I don't really need these anymore or something happened. We were downsizing. No big deal. You know, I think I want to celebrate people's participation. You know, part of me wants to celebrate that. You know, I don't want just one team getting the trophy and we've done all this work. I get some of that. I get it that we should celebrate people's involvement, their hard work, even if they didn't get number one. I get that. But we've kind of celebrated it too much. Yay! You kicked the ball in the wrong goal. You're going the wrong way down there, you know, and these things. And so we've almost, we've lowered the expectation of excellence, you know, that we just do, oh, everybody's okay kind of a thing. Um, we tell everyone they've done a great job who just kind of showed up. And Jesus is saying, this is what is expected of you. I hired you to do the job. You're supposed to do it. When you come in, I don't tell you to kick up your feet. You're not done for the day. There's more work to be done. We'll celebrate when the work is done. I mean, there's a time for rest, but Jesus is saying, no, we don't congratulate everybody for doing what they should have done anyway. I've never had anyone in the military when I was done working for the day and say, good job, Derek. It was expected of me. We couldn't leave anyway. We were on a ship, but we were expected to work. That's the thing. We were expected to do that. Now, here's the principle. I want you to see this. If you paid a teen $30 to come and mow your lawn, he comes in, he's done, he mowed it. Obviously, if he's a kid from the church, you want to say something nice. Thank you for doing the job. You pay them the $30. But are you going to high-five him and say, great, you're the best employee ever, or the person that's ever mowed the grass? You, you don't necessarily say that. I mean, you might look out there today, you hired somebody to mow your lawn, and they leave patches unmowed or things not done. But if that teen got out there mowed, and then began to weed eat, do some edging, maybe pull out the, air blow, the blower and blow the grass off of things, and you saw that he went above and beyond, that's excellence. That is what we celebrate. Wow, you didn't just do what I paid you for. You did more. And that's what Jesus is really talking about here is that we are to celebrate those who are going above and beyond, not doing what was expected or the bare minimal here. Um, and that's what it is to be a Christian. 
to go over and beyond, to go what we call the extra mile. I don't just show up. I want to do not just what is expected of me. I want to do more. I want to put my touch on things. You know, there's pastors. I was reading something a friend posted. Churches that are growing have pastors involved in things more. In a sense of not that the pastor's doing everything, but he's leading the way, he's doing, he's putting in more time to make things happen. You can't move anything forward given the least amount of time in your life. If you showed up at work, who is going to get the bonus? Who is going to get the extra money or the promotion? The person that shows up late all the time? The person that has a bad attitude? Or the person that's digging in and doing the job? And you see that and you're like, yeah, that's the employee we need to give this next job to. That is the one who cares about this. They're, they're fully involved in these things. It's what it is to be a Christian. What's next? How else can I help? What else is there to do? I, I want to be involved. I want to help this mission go forward. In fact, I'm at a place in my life where at times, you know, we feel stressed out because something is always happening. When you get that call that someone has died and you have all these other things going on, that there's some anxiety involved in that. There's some stress. But at the same time, I feel like maybe I'm not doing enough. There's more to be done. There's more work. There's more people to call and, and, and pray for and connect with in the world. You know, I used to attend church when I felt like it. Um, I didn't serve. wasn't actively following or learning, and, and I didn't give. But all that radically changed. I was worshiping the God of laziness. I'd become a lazy person. I think when I got out of the Navy, I weighed maybe 190, 200. Uh, maybe a little over 200 when I got out of the Navy. I just did nothing for a while and gained weight. Got up to 325 pounds. I was just doing nothing with my life. And when God radically saved me, you'll have people say that they were saved from drugs and addiction and all these other things. I was rescued from laziness. I was rescued from just doing life without purpose. God saved me and I, I wanted to work, you know, and I started becoming busy about ministry and providing for my family. Um, but I never was deeply involved in that. I didn't even give. I remember a church was holding a campaign to raise money and I signed a sheet of paper, a paper and a slip that um, committed to giving $70. And I never gave that money. It bothered me. Like it's deep in my heart, I know that I did that thing. And it was a challenge. I felt convicted and I never did it. I never gave. And then later I was convicted about it. So I ended up giving whatever church. I, I gave more because I wanted to make up for that. It just felt weird uh, that I was not doing anything with my finances. I came across this this week, Billy Graham, which we learned about last week, right? If you don't know who Billy Graham was, he was an evangelist in our country, spoke around the world, millions are saved through his ministry, and he recently passed away. He said, a checkbook is a theological document. It will tell you who and what you worship. Isn't that fascinating? If I looked at my checkbook at the time, which it was mismanaged, <laughs> you would have saw, wow, waste, just Waste, waste, waste. And if you don't know what a checkbook is, we'll just say your account, your ins and outs, your spendings and your comings and goings and all of that. But if you were to track those things, it would show what you care the most about. What do you really worship or who do you really worship? 
And so we are called to give our time and our resources to this ministry, this mission. Out there we had these baskets for pastor appreciation. And somebody put a Batman thing in there. Who, is, who likes Batman? One of these pastors likes Batman. And uh, I love Batman. He's awesome. I've watched it. I used to read the comics. I loved it. In 1989, Batman came out. It was in the theater. I loved it. We went like three times. Me and my friends were like, yes, it was so great. Loved it. Um, I've always loved the story of Batman because he's not the normal superhero. He doesn't have superpowers. What does he do? He uses his resources, his money, to fight crime, to stop evil. I, I would call that missional, that we're using our money to do right, to stop evil in the world. That's why I think our money is involved in this thing. So the question is, who and what are you worshiping with your time, your effort, and your funds? Where does most of your time go? Now, you might say your family. That's good. I want more time to go to your family. That's huge. But is time going to the ministry? Are you sacrificing and giving to the ministry? It speaks to the heart of who we are. And I want you to know, if that speaks to you today, my challenge to you is to review what you consider to be Christian. Are you doing the minimal? Or are you stepping up the game? Are you giving what is expected? These things that are, well, this is kind of expected of me, and I've kind of come into a comfortable area of what is expected. Are you wanting to please God? Like, I want to please Him. I don't want to just show up and throw together a sermon and give it and go home. I want to do what pleases God. Do you know that's why I speak to some of the hard issues? Because I don't want to please people. And I know that God's calling is to speak to the issues that matter. He is loving. He is severe. There's a lot going on here. I want to please my God. Are you doing the minimal or are you stepping up the game? Let's look, look at it this way. I've heard this years ago. If you were arrested for being a Christian, what would they find out about you? Now let's pretend we're in communist Russia, USSR, back in the 80s. And there is an agent called Yuri. He comes and arrests you for being Christian. He brings you to his senior agent, who is Ivan, the terrible. <laughs> and they put you in a holding cell, and they're having a conversation, and they're asking questions about your Christian walk. Is he really a Christian? So they're doing this investigation, these KJB, K, uh, KGB agents. And the first question, does he teach about Jesus? No, never seen him teach about Jesus. Does he go to class about Jesus? No, we've been tracking no classes about Jesus. Does he help when not church with anything? No, we've been watching. He's, he doesn't do much more than that, then go. Does he give money? We've been tracking no money given to church. Have you seen him pray or read Bible? No. Does he speak out against our atheistic government? Anything against Stalin? Any, anything against our government? No. And what does he do? He goes to church once in a while. Well, even I do that from time to time, you know. And have you ever considered that? If you really were arrested. And I want you to know, I say this with a smile, it's coming. It's closer than we ever thought it was. The IRS has been weaponized against Christian organizations. 
They're fighting back and forth against policy of what is right for the IRS to do in considering what is Christian or not. This was recently in the court. This is what was said. Because Christian ideas are similar to conservative ideas and some of Republican ideas, then they can't be considered nonprofit. If they're pro-life and all these other things, they share common values. So what does that mean, church? If we considered one political party the enemy and this group of religious people consider some of those things their value, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to start watching, they're reviewing. They already know right now. By the way, the government knows how much money you have. At any given moment, they know how much money. They know what you're supposed to pay in your taxes. When I report my taxes, they give me a form of how much tax money I have to pay quarterly. They know what I've made. They know what I'm you know, supposed to make. They know what they're going to take. They're keeping up with how we spend our money. They're watching what we are doing. To be a servant of Christ means that the entry-level Christianity is just part of life. These things that I was doing this illustration about with these Russian guys, that's what's expected. That's not even bare minimal. Bare minimal is faith in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about people being saved by the skin of their teeth. But being saved is not necessarily the goal. I want to be saved. Living saved is what we're supposed to do as God's people. Jesus says if we have only done the bare minimal, we need to call ourselves. And this is hard. I'm reading this. As a pastor that's called in the ministry, watching what I've done, watching what I am doing, watch what, you know, what is God calling me to, um, you have to call yourself an unworthy servant if you've only done what is expected of you. Those things are expected. I've been teaching this more and more, speaking to this more and more. We want people saved. I want people to believe in Jesus Christ, but we radically have to shift from just attendance ministry. The church has measured church health for years by how many people are attending. And two years ago, we had 199 on Easter Sunday. Great, right? But are we discipling that 199 is the question. And at the end of the day, if you begin to work through these things, and why, I recommend eight things. And these are, are not over and beyond, by the way. I believe this is what is expected. That worship is a priority, Right? That I am in a class, that way I can build relationships with other Christians and learn about Jesus on a deeper level. From the pulpit, instructions, vision, this is who we are as a church. We're learning about God together more deep, more in-depth, more relational in a small group or a class. Those are things that are expected of disciples from the beginning. What else is expected of a disciple of Jesus Christ? Uh, That we are praying. We should be praying regularly. Those people that wanted Daniel arrested in the Old Testament, they knew he was praying. They were watching. Daniel never said, oh no, they may be watching. I probably should just pray quietly in my heart. They're praying. Are you reading Scripture daily? Are you beginning to learn more about God? Are you giving? Those are things that are just common. They are normal for us as disciples. Are you serving in the church? And I don't mean you have to be here every time the doors are open. But we love to have people just serve. And we don't recognize them a lot. Like if there's a funeral, there's ladies that get together and they're serving in the kitchen. They're not seen. They're preparing meals. They've donated food. Other people have donated food. They're dropping them things off. Uh, All the items, they're preparing it. They're serving. They're setting up the tables. They're cleaning. Those are things that were happening in the early church. Did you know that? They said, this ministry has exploded 
Um, the apostles can't tend to the tables every day. They need to be preaching and praying and, and winning people to Jesus. So they, they establish deacons, which just basically servants in the church. And the requirement just for a deacon, it says to, to serve tables, and I don't want to minimalize that. That means you have to keep up with funds, you're buying food, you're serving people, you know their needs, you're highly involved. But it says that they were filled with faith, serving tables. Filled with faith, filled with the Spirit. They had God in them. They were filled with wisdom. They were involved in this ministry. They were stepping up and serving. They chose seven uh, as they were serving. Other things, just what is expected. Of course, giving, like I said, being involved in a small group, a class, praying, reading the Bible. I would say fasting from time to time above and beyond in that. That I'm fasting. God recognizes fasting. He honors that when we are seeking Him in fasting. Serving in the church Finding a way to help somebody in the community. Not everybody can be involved at the rescue mission. We want more people involved in ministry. We want manna back running again so we can help and serve the community in that way. We want to do these things. But, you know, just knowing if your neighbor needs help, a friend, a family member, helping outside of the building. And finally, inviting somebody again. The New Testament church told people about Jesus. They invited them to Christ. They invited them to be a part of what God was doing in the world. We want to do what is pleasing to God, not what is merely expected. Whatever you do, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. I'm not doing this for recognition. I'm not doing this for accolades. There's a lot of people out there that are trying to build a platform to get followers. But whatever we do, work heartily as for the Lord and for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance and your reward. God is going to bless us. He is a rewarder for those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11. God rewards those who diligently seek Him. Ultimately, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's give our God our best, not the bare minimal. The Old Testament encouraged people to give their first fruits, not the leftovers. When they did farm work and they brought in the crops, and they gathered the corn or the wheat and they brought it. They took the portion from the top, the first, and gave it to God and gave it to the ministry. When God called the Hebrew people back from captivity to Jerusalem, Nehemiah led the charge in getting the wall built. We've talked about that before. The, the people were in captivity. God leads them back. Nehemiah gets supplies. They're going to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that was destroyed. It actually says this in Nehemiah 4.6. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. You know what helps limit problems in the church and people fighting and griping about silly stuff? Getting focused in on a vision and putting our hand to working on that. I gripe less. If I do gripe, it's about how can we do this better? You know, it's not about... It's like we put our hand on a mission. Our vision here is to reach Casper. I want you to be revived, equipping one another that we are equipped to do the ministry. We're advancing the gospel. We're connecting with people in our community. We're bringing in the harvest for God. When Christ commissioned the church to go and make disciples, they had a mind to do the work of ministry. And there's time, again, there's time to rest. Church, we are overly seeking recreation. I want people to rest. But there's an addiction that I just need to get away. What are you getting away from? Have you worked? I want you to go back and read Hebrews 4 for you guys that are Bible students. They talk about going into the promised land. God says, well, how can they enter in my rest if they haven't worked? 
How can I enter into God's pleasure and comfort if I haven't worked? We're in this cycle of continual recreation and rest, and we need to put our hands to the work. Here's the deal. I'm a big believer in rules and commands, and as Christians, we are a people of the book. We want to be obedient to Christ, but sometimes we use the rules to keep us from doing more. We create a set of rules, which is our personal expectation for what Christianity is. We have, again, we are people of the book. There's rules in here. We need to keep the rules. We keep the rules because we love God, because we are in relationship with Him. But if we just say, I am keeping the rules, that limits us. I want to share to you why I think this. If you would scroll forward, I have a picture here. Um, I was going to wait till later to talk about this in, in Luke chapter 18, the story of the rich man who comes to Jesus, young guy. Jesus, how can I enter into eternal life? Well, have you been keeping the commands? Yes, kept all of them since my youth. I haven't murdered anyone. Well, you shouldn't murder anybody, right? I've not been lying. I've been doing all these things. I've kept the Ten Commandments. Really? That's great. You're a very rich person. The problem is you've only kept what was expected. So there's more commands. It's not just the Ten Commands. It's what God is commanding you to do now. So Jesus is going to flex. He is God in the flesh. Yes, you've done, a well. you've done well. You've done a good job. You've kept the commands. But now go and sell all that stuff. It's keeping you from following me. Go give it to the poor. All that stuff you've accumulated. All the things you don't need. You show up here in Wyoming in a hot rod and a convertible that's a lowrider. You can only use it three months a year. Sell it. Give it to the poor. Give it to the ministry. And then he actually says at the end of this, you can go back and read it uh, in chapter 18, and follow me. It says this young man goes away and weeps because he had so much property, so much stuff. Why do he weep? He was really not in love with God at all. He did the bare minimal as a religious person. He wasn't in love with God, and, and God is calling, follow me. Do what I'm calling you to do. You'll be blessed. You'll have eternal life. You'll help those around you. So Jesus raises the bar. And that's what He does with us. Because we get to a place of complacency. We have something called in the Nazarene denomination, sanctified and petrified. Where people used to say, I was sanctified in 1930. What have you done since? Well, I don't know. Would they still be alive? I think so. If they were sanctified, maybe. Maybe if the Lord was with them. But somebody was sanctified years and years ago. I remember going down forward. I've heard these testimonies. And God, this and that. What is God doing right now? Is He calling you now to do something new? And are you willing to say yes and follow Him? Uh, I, have a, I had 45 minutes to preach, I think. Where'd the time go? In closing, I was like, Jay only did three songs, way too much time. What am I going to do with all this? I came across this book years ago. I don't even know how I got it. Um, for, for a while there, I just gathered a bunch of leadership books. I loved reading it and just wanting to improve and become better. Um, this book, uh, Incarnate Leadership, the author is Bill Robinson here pictured, who is the president emeritus of Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. He served as this president for 17 years, 1993 to 2010. This book, he deals with the concept of being uh, value-driven versus rule-driven in the book. 
Now, I'm going to shorten this because we're coming to an end here, but he basically is talking about when you, if you're just obedient to the rules, you're limiting yourself. That means that is your, your bar. But if you're value-driven, you base it on those things and you go above and beyond. And he gives this illustration that he's talking about when he went to the post office. He goes in there, he's returning a package that was damaged. He goes to the counter and says, I need to return this. And the lady says, you actually have to go to another office to have them authorize returning this package. This is years ago. And, um, and I'm from the post office. I know exactly what he's talking about. I know, I, I mean, I'm just in this illustration with him and this story he's telling. And he says, um, if... Do you think that they would approve returning this package? And the clerk says, yes, I think they would. And he says, is there a way that you, couldn't you just return it yourself, take action and, and, and return it? She said, I could, but it's against the rules. And he says, the sign behind you says that you want that customer satisfaction is the number one priority. Well, because of the rules, I can't do this. And so he said he left and realized the rules limited them in actually giving good customer service. Now, he contrasts the experience with the United States Postal Service, which is a hybrid, is government kind of a thing, so you get some of that. You've been to the um, Department of Transportation, the DMV, all these things. You understand. Now, I'm not giving government that hard a time. Some of you guys are government employees. Um, but he contrasted with Nordstrom, and some of you may know who they are, but they, their rule is customer satisfaction. They actually mean it. They actually have the rule written down. They give you this postcard when you become this 5 by 7 note card. If you would scroll forward, it says this on it when you become an employee. We're glad to have you with our company. Our number one goal is to provide outstanding customer service. Set both your personal and professional goals high. We have great confidence in your ability to achieve them. Rule number one, Use your good judgment in all situations. There will be no additional rules. Wow. The bar set high. Value. Satisfying the customer. Doing what's right. So here, Bill Robinson tells a story. He has a speaking engagement in Washington. And it's to happen at 10.30. He has flown in the night before. He wakes up. He had grabbed his dry cleaning. He's opening it up, putting on, put his suit coat on, goes to put on his pants, and he realizes that they are pants for a Spokane police officer, a woman police officer. Obviously, they didn't fit. They had given him the wrong pants. He takes his clothes. He runs straight over the Nordstrom, and as they're opening, he, he goes in and tells them the dilemma. How hard would it be to get a suit tailored um, today, he said, normally it takes two weeks. I think we can do it in 25 minutes. They jump on it. They tailor the suit. They get him out the door in 25 minutes. He's off. He makes it to a speaking engagement. Everything fine. The point is, is that one company was rules-based. Now, the rules matter, obviously. We need rules. But the other one, obviously there was a rule, but they set the standard higher. We're not doing the bare minimal. We're not doing just what is expected. If a customer comes in and this is what they need, can we make it happen? If God is calling us to something more, can I make it happen? Well, you know, Lord, I've, I've kept the commandments. I show up to church, you know, I call myself a Christian. What if God is calling you to more? Are you willing to say yes to go above and beyond and follow Jesus Christ? And church, with that being said, I'm just going to close there as you review your life and think about that. Am I just trying to do the bare minimal? Am I just you know, dialing it in, phoning it in sometimes? Or am I willing to do what God is calling me to do? Let's pray together.
Father, we love you this day. Lord, we thank you for calling us into your service. You've called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Lord, we thank you for giving us a spirit that has been able to overcome sin. And Lord, I pray today that we are a people that's not just trying to keep the ten, but Lord, that we are trying to obey you, whatever you command. The next thing, the next ministry, stretch us, Lord, challenge us. Let us say yes by faith. We trust in you and love you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we love you. Go in grace and peace. You are dismissed.